when you know what the score is going to be, you don't have to worry about what the crowd is saying. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Nick DeMarco, the Director of Sports Performance at Elon University. Nick has spent time as a strength coach at Iowa, as well as William Penn University, and has played in NFL as an outside backer. Our previous guest, Jordan Newsman, spoke very highly of Nick and his leadership abilities, so we had to have him on the podcast. Today, we talked about skill development for athletes, how to lead others and get everybody on the same page, and the mindset of, if your life sucks, you suck. One of my favorite things about this podcast is talking to high-performing coaches, high-level coaches, and kind of seeing that it's less about the raw skill set and less about the knowledge of the strength conditioning world, and more about the philosophy and how you live your life outside of it. And we dove deep into that today with Nick. I hope you guys get something out of this podcast. And if you do, it, it would be a huge help for the podcast if you guys rated it. And the ratings kind of fuel where we want to push this podcast and fuel what, where we want to go with this podcast. So if you guys think it's earned it, that'd be awesome if you guys could rate it. Thank you for listening. Well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. You want to tell the uh, listeners a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into the world of sports performance and where you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, St. Charles, Missouri, suburb outside of St. Louis. Only child, uh, played sports my entire life, ton of different sports. I've been worked with and the furthest I made it in sport was football um, at the college level and, and so on. Um, but as a young kid, played baseball, soccer, uh, basketball, ran track and field, uh, just tried to get involved in as many sports as I could. That's just really always been my passion is sports. Um, always involved in it in any way I could be. Um, and in high school, looking for that next stage in college, I knew I wanted to play college sports. I knew I wanted to be a teacher slash coach of some sort. I thought it'd be at the high school level at that point in my life. And then I went to William Penn University is where I did my undergraduate, which is in Oskaloosa, Iowa, a small little town. And as soon as I got there, I met my strength coach, uh, Ike Hammerly, has been a, as big of an impact on my life as anyone outside of my dad, probably. And instantly I knew that I wanted to be a strength coach. I just had no clue that that was a career path um, prior to getting to college. And so I was pretty fortunate that during my time there, they you know, at a smaller school, they don't have necessarily enough strength coaches to cover everything um, and can be a little bit more laid back and letting students help out a lot more and get meaningful experience, not just like the true intern sit over there in the corner and you can coach the accessory lifts. And so during my three years there, I was able to help out as much as I could. I would always hang out in the office, just try and learn from them, steal books from them. And, and I knew I wanted to be a strength coach that entire time, kind of. Uh, so it did give me about three extra years to prepare for that career path a little bit. And I did my undergraduate degree or uh, undergraduate internship between my junior and senior year. The summer of 2013, I went to uh, the University of Iowa with Coach Doyle and the staff there and did my internship and absolutely loved it. Just kind of verified that that was definitely what I wanted to do. And the college setting specifically is what I was most interested in, just the team environment. Went back, finished my senior year. As soon as I graduated, I took my CSCS past that to where I was able to kind of start looking for jobs. Uh, once my college or pro football career ended, I was fortunate enough that Coach Dole asked me to come work for him 
in January of 2015. I had a few other opportunities to be a GA somewhere else, and it was kind of a new position of very low pay, restricted earnings spot. And it was, do I pay for my master's out of pocket for a better experience, or do I get my master's for free for a job that is only going to lead to me looking for another job similar to the one I've been offered? So I chose the experience over the money for that first position and never really looked back from there. Worked there for a little over three years in a full-time coach capacity. After that was given the uh, opportunity to run our own program here as the director of sports performance at Elon and been here for right at about two years now. Next month will be two years. So working on to uh, year three here soon. And that's kind of a, a quick assessment of my path. I have my master's and then I'm working on my dissertation currently for my PhD. I love that. So if, if we can draw back a little bit to you, you mentioned that pro football career. What was that kind of like process like to get into the professional world? And how has that helped you now as a coach? Uh, I would say from a small school, that was never really, you know, a lot of people have that dream, but they're kind of unrealistic. Everyone thinks they can be an NFL player when there's really the amount of humans on the planet is very, very slim who get that opportunity. And so I never really had thought much of that as a path. Uh, but we had a guy go to the NFL my sophomore year, redshirt sophomore year, and has he still has played a successful NFL career. And he kind of brought some scouts to our school, being an NAI school. And they asked my junior year if I'd do like a, a junior day where they just came in, got some measurements on me. Uh, at that level of school, they're like, oh, we run a 40. And of course, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do whatever you want. And ran a 40, and that kind of put me on the map, I guess. And then my last year, I had good stats for the NAI level. Um, I had a ton of sacks, tackles for loss, and there was enough teams interested that I got a chance. Um, I would just say, you know, getting that chance is really, I don't know, just goes to show like day in, day out, there's hundreds, thousands of people that had far better five-star, four-star kids out of high school that didn't get a chance to go to the NFL, uh, kids that were playing at big power five universities who don't get the chance to even be on a 90 man roster just because they don't do the right things. Um, and it just taught me that if you have good habits, obviously I was fortunate enough to have decent genetics. You don't make it just by uh, being a great, great work ethic guy. If that was the case, there'd be a lot of D3 players making it at the NFL. But just if you have really consistent habits and you do the right things, you can get a lot more out of out of yourself than you think. And it's goes back to, I think I took it from the book legacy performance is capability plus behavior. And obviously I had enough capability to be decent, but if you choose the right behaviors over time, it'll really get you the highest level of performance that you can get. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I uh, we really uh, at with our football team, we read legacy um, every fall camp. So that that's yeah. one of our like go to books about setting the culture in order for you to be able to perform. Like you said, you need to have those genetics that sets the baseline. But if you're not having that culture and you don't have that behaviors to push you forward, none of that really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of guys who are super talented who should be in the NFL who never make it. Um, and there's a lot of guys who are on the fringe that if they just show some better behaviors and, and habits and had a little bit more consistency could make it um, if it meant enough to him. Yeah. So when that football career was over and you kind of had to hang up the cleats, what was that transition like for you to becoming a coach? Was that a struggle for you or was that kind of, all right, this is my next step. 
next step in life? Yeah, I mean, I was probably a lot different than most people. Is I, I never really wanted my identity to be tied up in like me as an athlete. I always felt like me coaching was definitely my calling. And if I got to play at a high level football, like great, it was just kind of icing on the cake. Because um, I actually had a chance to go back the following year for like a, a futures contract to multiple teams. But I knew that Iowa was the spot that I wanted to go to. And as soon as I got offered that, it's like, well, I could go back and get cut again and waste a year of my coaching career, or I could just go dive in headfirst to what I know I want to do. Um, and realistically, I knew I was never going to be a guy that started and played every single down. And maybe I'm a little bit different, but I didn't want to be a guy that was on special teams battling my life to play a year or two and then go into a different career. I didn't think the financial gain of a year or two was really worth it. I just wanted to get into my coaching career and, and attack that. Yeah, I love that. That's just kind of like having the mindset of where you actually want to go and having being able to pursue that path. Um, you talked about before we started the podcast about how you had kind of uh, what you thought was right in the the world of strength conditioning and kind of where you are now and kind of that big shift. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, um, you know, I just especially when I first got into strength conditioning, everything was strength, um, and it was we're going to be as strong as we can. And I didn't look into the skill development side of things, the speed, power, et cetera, the things that truly matter and transfer over to the field. I just thought we're like a small piece of the pie and it was, Hey, we're here to get stronger, gain weight, get them in condition, like good enough condition. Like what did that mean at that point? I don't know. Um, probably very generic means that weren't super successful versus now. I think the biggest influence I've had is just kind of that high performance model of, optimizing everything and player health comes number one and number two comes are we actually improving on the field and how do we go about getting there and and that reverse engineering the sport aspect that like Kirwan and Platt always talks about just working backwards from the game working just through strength and 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 your realm trying to be a little bit more well-versed in what you're doing uh so what was kind of the the epiphany for you to open up your eyes to that I don't know if there's just like one aha moment necessarily it was just we had some guys who were strong, uh, myself, like what kind of led me down the more agility over change of direction path, which is one thing is I was a terrible agility person. When I played safety, I was really bad. I gained some weight. I moved down to linebacker. I was probably even worse because I had to react a little bit faster. I moved to D line, which is if you're looking from an agility and OODA loop perspective, it's more of an offensive attacking position of the defense. The roles on the line kind of switch. And as soon as it was, I have one task, I don't really have to read anything. I can just go. I was a really good football player, but I mean, I was barely good enough to start at the NAI level as a, a linebacker or safety, not really doing much just because my agility was really poor. Even though if I tested the L drill, I tested the, the five, 10, five, I would be on the higher end of the spectrum, but it wasn't carrying over. Um, and I've always seen the guy that's a great low bar back squatter who can't do anything. So I think it's just a bunch of different kind of steps in throughout my own playing career and then coaching career to where it's like, does this really make sense? If, if that was the case, you just turn power lifters into sprinter force into the ground was all that really mattered. It, I think it's just been a culmination of so many different things have continued to lead me down different paths. And then really, especially being in this role, um, hiring people who don't necessarily think the exact same things as me. Um, they have a similar philosophy overall and kind of, 
they fit the character that I would want to hire, but they bring different elements to it. Um, like Jordan, who was already on here, um, Cameron Ringstead, Chula Loomis, Brandon Robinson, even our interns, when we get in a staff meeting and they can bring ideas, it's like, oh, well, I never thought of it that way because everyone has different experiences. And so they've really driven my philosophy further forward um, than anyone else. I, that's uh, I geek out about that story because I, I was very similar. So I, I was a, I came into college as a fullback and I dropped quickly on the depth charts. I was, I was a big, strong dude, could squat like 550, like thinking I'm the man because I'm the man in the weight room. And I stepped into college athletics as a fullback and I was like an A-string fullback by the time and I couldn't move, I couldn't react. And <laughs> they, they switched me to defensive line and as soon as I switched to defensive line, I could play and I was a good player. But taking that movement alive, that's where it kind of clicked in me. I was like, yeah, so none of this stuff, of, like I'm the best in here and I'm the worst on the field. So there's no correlation there. Like let's, let's recalculate this and let's look a little bit deeper. And then seeing some your guys' stuff, some of like Cameron stuff, some of um, Sean Mishka's stuff, that's where it really opened yeah. my eyes as well. It's like, okay, there is something else here. There's there's a different path to go that probably correlates a little bit more. Um, a thing I want to talk about is you, you mentioned that leadership and how you're, you're kind of bringing in people with very similar mindsets but not necessarily in the strength conditioning world. Can you describe a little bit of what that looks like when you're bringing somebody in? Yeah, so ideally, you know, you, you have a good internship program and you can see people work for you and you can hire those guys like Cameron Ring said was one of those. It has to be someone that I trust is recommending them first off. It's not like I'm just hiring guys on a whim. Like I know someone who knows them really well. The most important thing to me is that they just have the same mindset as me. Are they like lifelong learner and they're really eager to learn are they pretty progressive and creative they want to think outside the box uh and then if they're just generally already well versed at stuff great but depending on the level of the position say it's a lower level position or entry level it's a first job even if they don't know that much about strength and conditioning but if they bring a great perspective and i know that they can teach people how to do things I think our staff can teach them, you know, how to develop a philosophy and, and anyone can open up a textbook and become better at those things. It's can you teach people? Can you relate to people and have good relationships? And are you going to bring value to the department through whatever your strength is? And I think if you're at a mid-major school like we are, we're never going to keep people here. At least it's been my thought. Uh, from how much money they make. If, if you make 50,000 here, you make 50,000 at the University of Alabama, you're probably gonna choose the University of Alabama just because of the, the logo attached to it. But for us, if I can give people autonomy and they know that they can program for themselves, they can think for themselves, they have a say in our program, they get a chance to master what they're good at and I can give them a good quality of life where they're not gonna be overworked and guarding their desk for a living then we can keep people here a lot longer, even if they make a touch less um, and giving them just a valuable experience over a, a great salary. Yeah, so that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you about too, because Jordan spoke very highly about you. And that that's kind of why I reached out to get you on the podcast, because he talked about the way you lead has allowed him to grow and the way you lead has allowed him to be the coach that he wants to be. So can you dive in a little bit into how you go about the world of just almost like hands off and having that leadership perspective but not being the dictator yeah and i think you should be a facilitator not a dictator and that would be another huge shift in my just strength and conditioning philosophy when i first got into it it's you know 
everything is so obedience driven and very military like and we want these perfect clean lines we want to set up the cones exactly how we do it everyone you know everything is like so structured um and i'm explain this movement and then you're going to go do it and then you're going to come back i'm explaining the next movement versus I, I think self-discipline is so much greater than obedience. Yeah, it, you can get anyone to listen to you if they're if it's driven through fear and reward. And maybe our first year here, everything wasn't done exactly how I'd like it. But now year three of the program in the off season, guys are doing things exactly how we would want them done. But they're doing it for the right reasons. We educate them on why we want them to do it, why it's important, how to establish good habits, and they have the discipline to do it on their own versus me micromanaging them. And I think about the same thing for the staff. Like if, if you're just dictating to them everything that they have to do, they're just going to get very tired of it. And nobody wants to work for a person who doesn't listen. And there might be some things where it's, hey, I throw it out to the group. I don't necessarily agree. But at least you all have a chance to voice your opinion and maybe, hey, when you're the director, you can decide that that's what you want to do. But currently, I still feel strongly about this, but I'm at least hear their thoughts and they know. And most of the time, I generally go with them anyway, because they have good ideas. Um, but like a typical staff meeting at most places is kind of death by meeting. We're going to cover the exact same thing or we'll watch a read a book watch a video and i don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of structured learning but for us what we've gone to more recently is just challenging people so we'll uh, last week it was what's the number one thing that you've learned that's not coaching related that has helped you as a coach you've never learned it in the strength and conditioning curriculum but it is the top thing that kind of guides what you do uh what's the if you had three choices, what would number one be? Number two, three, in ascending order of importance to protect the hamstrings. And making every single person bring their own answer to the table, interns included, and then just kind of probing people for why. The week before, we laid out a full week of training for a football offseason. Exactly how would you do it, not, hey, adjust how I've done things and try and see it through my lens. I just want to know exactly how you think. And then we'll kind of probe and ask questions. And I think it allows you to be creative and get a lot more ideas, one. Uh, but then it makes you as an assistant, intern, or even myself, you have to be able to concisely convey your message. You have to put good thought into it. And if you don't believe in something and understand why you're doing it, it's at least challenging you. And sometimes in a meeting, it'll be, oh, I don't know, or they draw something up. And like, oh, now that I'm thinking about it, I change it. Um, so just kind of challenging people in that way. And then from a coaching standpoint, they're, I'll see them coach and I might give them some feedback here or there on how they're coaching. But I think if you just kind of lead by example and then they take their own traits of how they do things and let them, them run with it, the athletes are going to be the gauge of how they're doing. Um, if they enjoy the way they're coaching and they're responding to the program, if they're not, then I might step in and say, Hey, here's a few things that you need to do, but you need to learn for yourself more than someone force feeding you information on exactly how it needs to be done. Cause there's really no one way that it needs to be done most of the time. No, that's awesome. We just, uh, we just had a podcast with Carter Schmitz talking about the whole thing in the podcast was the gray area and not thinking in black and whites, not thinking in this is right or this is wrong, but trying to find the middle ground in between the two to be able to push it forward. And what I think you allow your your staff to do is what it sounds like is that fear level is so low. So let's say you had these staff meetings, but you you they knew every time they put out a different idea, you were going to yell at them. 
at the end of the day, all you're going to end up getting is your own ideas regurgitated back. And I think that's a struggle that I see a lot of times in powerful strength coaches is they only surround themselves with people that are going to tell them what they want to hear. So then it makes them sound like a genius to themselves. Exactly. Every, a lot of people want confirmation bias. And then, like you said, if they're terrified to to say what they really think, because you might have a staff who has great ideas, but if they don't share those ideas, they're meaningless. Um, and if you can give them a platform of, yeah, we'll do that or I don't know how I feel about it for my programming. You put in yours, like try it yourself or try it on your athletes, see how it goes. And if it's great, then I'll adopt it. Um, but I, and I think you're the, the most important experiment that you'll ever have. If you're not doing stuff, you don't have to be an athlete by any means. Um, but you should be doing your own training and testing ideas on yourself before you start testing it on athletes. Yeah, that's uh, I, lo- I love that point. Every uh, every coach that I bring on here, I talk about like what's their own personal training, and they all say the same thing. It's like I'm my own guinea pig trying to trying to push something or trying to try something new for my athletes that I'm not sure if it'll work or I saw this and I'm not sure if it's great. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I'm gonna eliminate it on myself first. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, most people when I'm hiring people, a lot of people, if you looked at our staff, you'd be like, oh, that's a pretty. They don't look like the strongest strength staff I've ever seen, but everyone would be able to at least demonstrate how to run properly, how to actually move versus these big stiff dudes that can low bar back squat, but they can't explain anything on the field. Um, So I think if you're hiring and what's the most important thing, skill acquisition, the ability to perform on the field, and anyone can demonstrate proper weightlifting. You, You want guys that are at least somewhat athletic, at least a couple of them who can demonstrate everything for you really well. Cause most people learn better through watching people than you can explain exactly what you want in acceleration mechanics. But if you can't demonstrate it, it's really hard to get that. Yeah. That's uh that's kind of my whole thing for 2020 is, um, exploration of movement for myself because my, my whole, my whole background for like eight years in high school and probably two years of college was all the, the powerlifting stuff, as I mentioned. And then when we slowly started transitioning to more field, but then it was just more football stuff. But now I'm really trying to get good at some of like roles and just like basic human movements to get better at these things. So when I tell my athlete, hey, this is what I want to do, I can demonstrate it and kind of know where they're coming from and know what they're feeling during it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I want to talk about kind of these the toolbox of movement is kind of what I call it. But I had a quote from one of your um, podcasts where you said human beings pick the most efficient movement available to them at the time. I thought this was this was this was an awesome quote. Can you kind of dive into what that really means and the thought process behind that? Yeah. So just kind of that like rep without rep aspect, like Sean Mishka, uh, Michael's wife, those guys have really Corey Van Wick. They've push that stuff way farther forward than I have. And they have their emergence deal where um, they've got like curriculum courses, et cetera, on it. And I really, I just took their ideas and tried to make it as simple as I could for my own brain and then kind of distribute it to others who um, I think sometimes it seems so complex and you're like, Oh, how do I get into it? So we just really want to make it really simple and easy to use. But within it, like some people will dictate, Hey, you have to, your first step, you got to push cover ground. Other people are huge on, Hey, you have to take a crossover step. This is exactly how you can't take a false step when in reality, most of the time it's been proven that the false step is actually faster and just humans by nature pick the most efficient way to move when jumping like Jake Tora here went flat. They've talked about a lot that like triangle people internally rotate, pronate the foot to apply more force. Some people will see it like, Oh, I guess like their knee went in. Are they controlling that movement? 
or is it a liability because they're actually a liability? Um, and I think you have to have somewhat of a coach's eye for that too. But if the best athletes are always doing it wrong, it's probably not wrong. Yeah. It's, so I think if you just put people in a, you want to teach them as many things as you can. Like we'll teach a crossover step, a bucket step, how to push to move out of a stance. We'll try and teach as many random patterns as we can. We'll check our boxes with like our eight vector cut that Jordan came up with from a change of direction standpoint of they're going to cut it at 45, cut it at 90, reverse 45, 180 right back down the line. We'll progress that out of different positions, uh, different speeds of entry, et cetera. But when you get into an agility scenario, like you're going to pick whatever solution you think is best. Uh, it cracks me up when it's like, oh, if you would have had your foot underneath your hip right there and planted out, like unless it's an egregious like risk of injury or something, I'm probably not going to coach it. Like the best cue is just, which my strength coach said it all the time was just figure it out. Like you have to figure out things for yourself. And if you're moving that way, it's the most efficient movement for you at that time. Maybe in the case it's, Hey, you're not strong enough. You can't push laterally hard enough. So you choose an inefficient route. But as you improve those things, people will just pick the the path that works best for them. Yeah. And uh, I think as a strength coach can, and this is why I really like this quote is, is at the, you said this is the best movement they have at the time. And then what that allows us to do is how can we give them more movements or how can we improve that movement? So the next time they're in that position, maybe they pick a better movement or they at least have the option to pick a better movement or better option there. Exactly. And that would be the, the goal is to kind of create a wider bandwidth, you know, say this is my bandwidth of movements. I want to expand that as wide as possible to where I have a huge array of movements that I can always pull from um, really effectively. And some of that requires you have to have the things that underpin, you know, lateral movement. Can I actually push cover ground in the frontal plane? Can I, can I pronate effectively? Can I get a little bit more internal rotation? Am I strong enough to do these things? Do I have any power in that area? there's so many factors that if you're driving up general means in the weight room and you're doing great work on the field, like they're going to increase that bandwidth and have more options eventually. Yeah. So one of the things that I love that James Smith talks about is how kids nowadays aren't playing as much and they don't have that, that broad width that you talked about it. When you have like a freshman coming in nowadays, what is kind of your progression to teach them these movements or teach them these options to kind of widen that for them? Yeah, so we'll we'll teach some very general, like like I said, the eight vector cuts, the the push move step crossover bucket. We'll teach that and we'll slow it down just so they have an idea of how to do those things. We'll do that stuff in our prep, but anytime we're doing an agility focused day, our prep stuff is all one on one and it's lower level reactive stuff. So hey, we're just doing a push to move step and it's all single response. I push, you're the defender, you react and push. Like teach them, hey, get your eyes on his hip. Here's how you move. But just letting it be a little bit more free play and autonomy than like a really rigid performance prep. And then we'll throw like some people like, oh, if you can't do change of direction correctly, you can't go into your agility work. And they think of it as this progression of sequencing versus they played sports that sport specifically probably for an extended period of time if they're playing at the college level if your agility is vastly dissimilar from what their sport looks like you're probably doing it wrong anyway so why if they can play their sport why can't they do agility immediately so we'll put them in some 
scenarios that are going to challenge the things that we want to see, whether it's a mirror category, a chaser, or a score category. But just the more things you expose them to, and then every rep is different, is the beauty of it. So the first time they might get stuck and have to take a bucket step out of it. The second time they might have been really clean and they just close ground by pushing, staying square to the guy whatever it may be, but it's just going to teach them to get in those scenarios and they'll, they'll teach themselves more than we're teaching them anything. Yeah. I like that. It's good. That was, that was kind of my next question is when you set up these. So when you, you, you watch uh, your training or a lot of the stuff that we do here is we'll have, they, they're playing uh, this fancy games, a tag basically, but you're, you're playing that yep. muddle ball. You're playing something like that. Um, when you see something like a, a bad movement or somebody's consistently getting beat, and I know it's, and this is almost more selfishly for me, you, you have a hundred athletes out there you're working with. What is like, how do you draw them aside and be like, all right, here's something that we can do. Do you write that down? Or is it just like, eventually he's going to figure it out or get beat, continue to get beat? Uh, it kind of depends. If it goes down to like out of a hundred athletes, there's just people who are lesser athletes. I'm not really going to coach it and like bring a guy down because like, yeah, I just don't think you're a good enough athlete at this point. It, it's yeah. not a great cue, but it's uh, realistic. Um, if it's a case of like, you just don't understand the environment well enough and it's going to make you a better football player and it's a teachable moment. I'll just stop the game or when they're on their rest period, I'll explain like, Hey, that situation, like, you've got to understand that you have to close the gap. Like space is the number one goal of an offense, limiting space is the number one goal of defense. Like if you just sit there and don't close any space, you're going to get beat every time. Um, so if it's a teachable moment and it's clean and it, it makes sense, I'll definitely coach it. If it's something that's just like they're in a terrible position and they're out of control, I'll just pull that guy aside and talk to him individually. So it'd be kind of case by case. Um, I, I definitely think there's some time to cue some things and, and, at trying to at least help the guy out um, or put him in a situation where it's a little bit easier for him to figure out at some points. But most of the time they just need reps um, and, and to get exposed to those things. Yeah. Um, so next kind of question in this one, I'm going to kind of throw out here and see how you do what you do with it. Um, what's kind of the next step with some of these small side of games that we're playing? Cause in my head, I'm, I've been trying to think about ways to, make maybe incorporate some of the tactics of actual football in there or incorporate some of the play calls of actual football and that type of thing. Is there a next step that you see that these things could progress to? Uh, I think there could, if I was in the private sector, I'd probably do a little bit more of that. Uh, just cause, especially if you're working with like high school athlete where I was from, you didn't play spring football. So if yeah. you're playing other sports, stuff like that, fine. Like that's great. Go play other sports. It gets you, it's going to make you a better athlete, but if I can put you in some good football situations and like Michael's wife will, uh, building better athletes. He does a lot of that stuff. That's very context specific and he'll have guys running routes through on the football for us. We're just a little bit limited by NCAA rules. Like you can't actually bring a football out, but we definitely want to make the scenarios as close to the game as they can without intruding too much. Cause we're not really the sport coach. Even if you're involved and you understand the game, what they're doing tactically and the plays that they're calling, I have no input on. So I just want to put them in as close to a scenario as I can for receiver. They always want the ability to get open. I want to make it as specific as we can for them to where they're running routes similar to what they do and, and give them the freedom to run those routes, DB cover them, but it has to be at least a little bit general. And the fact that we can't use the football for us. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're, we're the, we're in the same situation. I was just wondering, but uh, we also have the, I work with private sector people as well. So trying to combine the two worlds going yeah. through there. 
Uh, one of the reasons that I really get, like your guys' pro- program is it, it's very much like that gray area to where you guys are using these small side of games, but you guys are also implementing the strength world and the weight room, and it's not one or the other. It's not triphasic or movement-based. You know, it's not we're trying to blend these two to create something better or just create what Elon's performance does. So can you kind of talk about the importance of the weight room for you guys? And I know you, you are passionate about the Olympic lifts and how you, you don't implement those with the athletes and then kind of the single leg to double leg progression that you have i mean i still love the weight room i think there's a lot to be done in there because especially if you have a novice athlete gaining strength is going to drive up a ton of qualities i think where it gets overblown is when i'm setting up a weekly micro cycle and i'm picking out where things go a lot of people are like oh well we back squat on monday that's their thought of this is the first thing it's the most important we're cleaning on monday for me it's Max velocity sprinting is the highest cost, most risky. Where does this go? Agility is highly important to me. Where does this go? Acceleration goes somewhere in between those days because it's you could do it on any day, but it's going to be a high-low structure of the nervous system is the most important thing. And then you're going to have days that are a little bit more neural focused, days that are a little bit more structural focused. So it's more just big picture. I still think when we're in the weight room, it's super important, but I'm not going to spend out of my eight-hour week seven hours in the weight room and an hour on the field. We want to be on the field as much as we can be. Understanding the nervous system is a little bit of an important factor, which some people don't quite get. So that would be like big picture. When we set it up, obviously the field's the most important. But then when we go to the weight room, we want to marry our concepts. So on a max velocity day, especially with an advanced athlete, it might be more of a vertical force day. Um, especially with our plyometrics, they'd be married up. On the agility day, it's a little bit more uh, – frontal plane, transverse plane movement, marrying it with a change of direction, multi-planner on an acceleration day, maybe it's a little bit more horizontal force. So we'd marry up those concepts. Um, but still, when a young athlete comes in, we want them to get stronger because it drives up everything. The more advanced they get, the further we get away from so much strength work. Everything that I do goes back to kind of Charlie Francis's vertical integration of keeping everything in the program, but just bearing your emphasis on what's important at that time. Um, but within the weight room, we definitely have a, a tiered approach from foundation, foundation plus, advanced, advanced plus, and single leg, double leg, Olympic lifts. That kind of all goes into it, just our general philosophy. We're definitely unilateral over bilateral at all times. It's just more important to me. Sport is asymmetrical and unilateral. There's not much that ever takes place in a true symmetrical double leg stance and that's where people i think get lost is like oh plenty of stuff happens on two legs yeah it happens on two legs but it happens asymmetrically and they're like oh a split squat's not single leg it's double leg the back foot's providing 10 percent of the work like okay great um we're definitely going to be a unilateral emphasis their entire career um but we'll have kind of progressions throughout for both so when we get say a, a freshman athlete they're in our foundations program our main movements are going to be the clean grip deadlift, just because it's a very foundational pattern. Uh, I want them to be able to do it well. It leads into good RDLs. It, it's just a basic movement they should be able to do well. And we will teach the front squat and have them do that. Those are their main bilateral movements, but we still have, if we're counting exercise to exercise, we're going to probably have a three to one, four to one of unilateral to bilateral 
and our main unilateral is getting them strong at very basic stuff, whether it's a split squat and then a true unsupported single leg progression, just because I think it is important of squatting down to a bench under control or a skater squat, a true single leg squat up on a box, somewhere in between mixing in like a high box step up where they're actually getting strong on one leg, truly unsupported. We kind of run those as two separate progressions of our more asymmetrical stuff and true single leg. Um, as guys get further along, we'll switch when they become foundation plus to a trap bar is our main movement. We don't squat anymore, front squat or back squat. Then our single leg stuff might go to more of a rear foot elevated split squat, front foot elevated. We'll still split squat our guys kind of throughout, um, but we'll just change the means. It might be hand supported. It really just depends on the phase, uh, but those guys do a lot less true strength work once they become advanced, advanced plus. And the progressions of movements just kind of came from that like tachyphylaxis, uh, which is a medical term, but like the more times that you're exposed to something, the less effect it has. So we wanted to kind of not just everyone's like, oh, we progress our periodization, we're linear, and then we become whatever they're doing, vertical integration, block, daily undulating, et cetera. And it's like, oh, we have a, a progression. For us, we progress our, progress our kind of rep schemes. We're linear at first, but we're higher reps. We go like one by 20, one by 15, one by 10, just get them strong at basic movements. Then we'll go into our foundation plus. It's a little bit more vertical integration, lower reps, still a strength focus with new movements. And then when we get to our advanced, it's a lot more speed, strength, strength, speed, power, keep strength in the program, but only to maintain it, not to grow it most of the time. And our movements become a lot more dynamic in nature. And I think that progression just allows you to actually make progress and not grind guys out with the exact same movements, exact same rep schemes for four years. Um, and at first, we didn't even front squat. I was just kind of like set a little bit too much dogmatic of no back squatting, no front squatting. I hate bilateral squats, even though I personally have had success with them. I enjoy them. When I tried it myself, I switched exclusively to single leg. I was 25, had been done playing football for a couple of years, probably for at least a year and a half. I didn't run at all. And I came back and went to a unilateral emphasis. I was doing some speed work that I was experimenting with. I PR'd my vertical jump, my broad jump, my 10 yard dash, 20. I think the only thing I didn't in PR was my 40, which I just really hadn't made it a focus um, without ever back squatting. It's like, okay, well, does this just work for me? Cause I already have a good bilateral base or what worked for other athletes. And when we got here and we started with our freshmen and it was all unilateral emphasis stuff, we had really ridiculous outcomes on a very vanilla program with, we did no ground-based explosives in the weight room. Think Olympic lifts, loaded jumps, none of that. All we did was plyometrics on the field, extensive to extensive. We did sprinting, acceleration day, max velocity day, agility, and had ridiculous gains and, and vertical jumps, tens, et cetera, just because guys get – it's very easy with those guys. And uh, so why rob them of adaptation later when you can do something very generic, very basic, and then keep making progress throughout? Our advanced, advanced plus guys will do – Ground-based explosive movements will do loaded jumps, whether it's trap bar jump, uh, dumbbell jumps, band resisted. We'll do medicine ball throws, horizontal 
loaded jumps doesn't really matter we're doing ground-based explosives within the weight room with those guys just because i think they're at the point in their career where they need it just doing the speed and plyometrics on the field isn't enough they need some loaded stuff to kind of work on those other ends of the force velocity spectrum versus a young athlete if they get stronger on one end of the spectrum they get faster it kind of closes that gap in the middle too just because they haven't been exposed to it um but the olympic lifts like i had that post on a little bit while back that actually was more positively received than i anticipated i competitively olympic lifted i thought the olympic lifts as an athlete are what made me like a better athlete for whatever reason you get attached to those kind of things but when you look at the time invested and the value that you're getting out of it i can just put a bar on my back and do a, a barbell jump squat, or I can take a decent amount of time doing my prep sets. It just takes so much more work to get ready to clean. Um, and it takes a lot of time to consistently coach it, make sure everything's technical. And I didn't want to make it the excuse of, oh, we can't coach it. Our athletes did it terrible, so we just got rid of it. We had athletes doing it well. It's just at what cost. It takes 15 minutes of your lift when instead just do great plyos, great speed, come in, get strong in the weight room, and get faster in the weight room with with whatever lifts you're using and not take the amount of time that they're needed and do it in a truly ballistic manner. Like you're going to get higher forces and better outputs with the loaded jumps, uh, altitude drops, anything of that nature than you will with the Olympic lifts because there's so much deceleration in the bar from the coordination standpoint. I, I just don't know what you can gain from an Olympic lift that you can't gain with anything else that's easier to use. Um, and that was definitely a hard one for me to drop. Our first year and a half year, we used them. And then finally, enough people had been on our staff like, ah, we don't need them. We don't need them. I was like, you're right. Let's drop them. And, and we haven't looked back since. It's been tremendous and a whole lot better from our overall program without them. No, that's awesome. That's uh, <laughs> very similar to me. I was a uh... I lived and died by the the clean. Um, and then the best athlete I ever was on a football field, the worse my Olympic lifts were. Right? <laughs> that, 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 as soon as I cut those out and spent more time in my sport and spent more time moving like I'm supposed to move, the best I was. And I, like I said, I was very much in your mindset of like, these are what made me to this point. Like I was so scared to drop them. And I just finally like, all right, I got to do this. I got to spend more time doing other things. So that's awesome. One thing I want to ask about is kind of, shifting the culture with your athletes when you kind of made the switch to not do any of these big lifts that they want to do like you guys want to go in and show that they can squat a bunch maybe they want to go in and show that they can clean a bunch did you have a big culture shift there to tell them hey this is why we're doing this not as much as i anticipated um just because i was like kind of a meathead as a player loved the weight room obviously and i think if someone had came in and told me not to do those things and i already had and i thought it made me successful i would probably would have been a little bit rebellious against that first it's just you don't have that many humans on a team who like love the back squat and really just like thrive like oh it's back squat damn fired up generally it's coaches like willing their athletes to back squat like you know we got to drive this up it's super important and it's just not um everyone will reference a study from like 1980s or even if it's relevant today and oh well the back squat improves vertical jump they've shown that for 30 plus years great it's it's is it causation or correlation like their lower body strength improving made the vertical jump go up not the fact that they chose the back squat to do so and my beef with the back squat comes back to anyone who fails on a back squat fails because of their spine torso like the ability to maintain posture under a load 
switch to a single leg, your posture is not going to be an issue most of the time. It's going to be your leg strength fails and you just can't do the weight. Um, so it's truly overloading this, the adaptation that we're seeking. Hey, I want lower body strength. Well, then I'm going to do an exercise that elicits better adaptation of lower body strength than uh, exercise that encompasses posture, et cetera. And then people will be like, oh, well, you have to work on posture, et cetera. Like that's an important quality too. Well, I can do that isolated in a completely different way that I think would be better anyway. Um, so when we got here, we were just really intentional about explaining exactly why we're not going to do it, how it's going to help them. And once people adapted to it and they're like, oh, I feel better. Like I don't have any low back pain. Um, I'm running faster. I'm jumping higher. Like, I guess they know at least something like, ah, I still love the back squat. Maybe we've had, like we had a pitcher who who's active on our team right now. He's an absolute stud. He trap bars like 625. He's like, oh, you know, I've talked to DeMarco. I just love the back squat. Like, great. Like, it's not like you're doing very good right now. The back squat's not going to make you any better. Um, but we really haven't had an issue with it. The Olympic lifts didn't have much of an issue with it either. I don't know if it's just the quality of kid that we have at Elon specifically, because it, it, it could be completely different if I went somewhere else where their culture was very meathead ish and you went in and tried to strip those things away. But for us, the guys that we had, when I got here, I felt like they were really bad Olympic lifters anyway. And we were, we improved our technique and they got better at them, but I don't think it was something that they loved. So cutting them out, we haven't really had anyone like, oh, coach, why don't we Olympic lift anymore? And we never really even explained that one. If someone asked, we would, but we just never put it in the program and haven't had anyone like, oh, when are we going to clean again? It just hasn't really been an issue. I love that you bring up that it's the, the quality of kid a little bit or that this the culture of the kid that you have is awesome, too, because I, I had a very similar situation here is one. I, I was a player here uh, a couple of years ago, too. So I kind of had the pedigree going in with these athletes. But I know other coaches have struggled when they have to go somewhere new and it's all new athletes and you're trying to change something completely like that where you struggle. So I was kind of looking at your mindset of that. So that yeah. was awesome. And, and that's the thing, like Brad DeWeese talked about at a clinic I was at this past weekend, actually. And like this works for the environment that you're in. Um, like if I went somewhere else, am I going to run the exact same program? Probably not. Like there's going to be some changes based off of the the skill, of the athletes, the culture of the team, et cetera. The general philosophy is going to be very similar. I'm not going to go and start back squatting everyone most likely. Um, but getting buy-in might be a completely different experience versus here. It's been super easy. Even the coaches, there hasn't been any fighting about it. it it's easy to say it was easy here because it was easy here. It, yeah. I can't speak for how it would be elsewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you talked about the, the general philosophy and this is kind of one of the big parts that I want to get to with your, the way you coach is you, you mentioned that nothing really matters if the intent isn't right. Uh, can yep. you talk about how you, and it's a little bit about that buy-in too, but how do you emphasize intent on what you're doing? Maybe it's the speed of the bar, maybe it's really running fast, but how do you emphasize intent? Yeah, I think if we had velocity-based training, I would definitely use it. And people are like, oh, velocity-based training is sprinting. Like, well, yeah, if you think about it in that terms, but velocity-based training just replaced with percentage-based. I'm basing their load on velocity instead of percentage. If we had that means, I would definitely do it almost year-round with our advanced guys, for sure. It really just comes down to us. Like For speed work, I think it's easy. You get out timers, and you time everything. You rank it. You post it. People see it. They try harder. Like If, if an NFL scout is out there, 
they're racing or there's timers, people will try harder. And I can control two of the three. So we'll time it or they'll race against each other for points or just pride, et cetera. And I think you get really high intent. You put people in an agility situation, like change the direction. Yeah, for sure. You could do one drill next to the other. One guy's trying to win. But when it's, hey, if I get juked out in front of the entire team, I'm going to be embarrassed. Like you're going to get really high intent out of those guys on that. Um, jumps, we'll get out the jump mat. We have a little tennis ball set up like off of a string to where we can change the height for like approach jumps. Try and measure that stuff as much as you can. I think it's just human nature. If you're just doing a set of box jumps or even like low box jumps or high box jumps, get a bad name. But if you, if you drive the height of the box up, people just try harder. Like you don't want anything dangerous to happen, but you want to facilitate things to where intent comes out naturally because subconsciously people just want to go through the motions. There's not that many humans that are just like truly indulged in, I'm going to have high intent on every single thing. Um, two would just be the environment as coaches. Like I think whatever you emphasize the most you get and what I emphasize the most is just intent, have a purpose to what you're doing pretty consistently. And so when we're doing a movement, it's, you know, stand strong, stand with the purpose, have intent to what you're doing. If you constantly hear those things and you get other guys coaching, you know, if I'm partnered with you in Iraq and you get a guy like, hey, stand with some intent. Like, I think that just shows that you're kind of building the, the culture in the right way from that standpoint. Um, but with the, the lifts, we don't have velocity base for anything. So it's really just coaching it that way. Um, if, if we could velocity base everything, we would. I just think anything that gets measured gets higher in tech generally. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, that's why that's one of my biggest things about the, the agility based games or the small side games that you play is like once a, I think once any coach sees the level intensity that you put 100 football players in a room or 50 football players in a room and you have them go at a game, that level of intensity is very rarely ever matched with anything that you do in the weight room because like you said, they don't want to lose in front of their entire team and there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and really the, the selling point that I try and bring to is, you know, I, like I would give our program away to any other team because I just don't think they'll execute it the same way. And like I said, it's environment dependent. So it might not work the same for their athletes. And we're constantly adjusting anyway. But two teams do the same program. They're going to get different results based off of every single team trains for eight hours. Some teams train better than others. But it's really the intent that you bring within the session that separates how the quality of that work and makes the most change. And then the habits that you have outside of the weight room to where you can really capitalize on those improvements you've made over those two hours. Awesome. So the, the last, the last programming question that I kind of want to ask you is what has been your biggest eye opener this last year for you? I would definitely say mine has been more energy system related. We, before did a lot of repeat sprint ability and we actually just posted on this last week we do a repeat sprint ability test uh which is modified off the tribe test that kier and and eric at william and mary posted about but we did it last summer and all of our training was very repeat sprints oriented we wanted to do shuttles um simulated like plays quote unquote where you're running patterns specific to your sport always maximal intensity work to rest ratios of football um, try to make it as specific as we could linemen pushing prowlers etc and we did our repeat sprint ability test that was the first time we did it we had trained with repeat sprint basically the entire time got to the off season really our only goal was 
I felt like as a weakness of our, my programming last year was we didn't get enough total volume throughout the week. And when guys go into camp, you go from eight hours to 20. I just need to get our workloads up safely. And how do we do it? Aerobic tempo. And football is a lactic aerobic anyway. So our theory was let's make our high days high. And so Monday was max velocity, Wednesday acceleration, Friday agility, maximal outputs. No repeat sprint ability because that takes away from strength and power in the weight room. It takes away from speed on the field with the time allotted. So those were truly a lactic efforts, full recovery for everything. And then Tuesday, we really pushed our volume on some aerobic tempo work. Thursday was uh, like upper body aerobic lift is what we've termed it, which we posted about pretty recently. And then one more day of like a short to long tempo run. Tuesday was long to short with higher volumes. And the original goal was simply like, don't interrupt like speed reserve. We want to get faster. And if through the aerobic work, we improve our ability to recover and our repeat sprint ability is the exact same. Great. Like we got other qualities improved without a, such a focus on that energy system development. And when you go extensive tempo, you can just build in higher volumes, which is what they'll see in practice. A typical week of practice based off the GPS stuff I've seen is 10,000 plus yards of running distance, which would be at least three miles per hour greater. Like it's not just them walking around or like the lightest jog. They're at least moving with some intent to what they're doing. Last, like most programs I've seen and ours included last year, I think the most we ever got to in a off season week was like maybe 7,000 yards. It's like, we want to create a reserve the same way you have a speed reserve. We want to make a reserve in our total distance cover. And we want to have a reserve in our high speed distance. The three variables I think cause injury the most and just build up our chronic loads as high as we could. What ended up happening was we retested our repeat sprint and we were night and day better. Like it wasn't even close without ever doing repeat sprint. So if you just isolate the two things you want, the ability to sprint faster, the ability to recover faster, aerobic, alactic, it actually created that better repeat sprint. Then when you do repeat sprint, it's never really maximal sprinting if you do enough of it. And the recovery, it's aerobic in extent because it's a shortened recovery. But if you're going maximal effort, you can only get in so many reps over so much time. So you're really not developing a robust aerobic system because you're limited by how many reps you do because the intensity is so high. So that's, uh, that's been an eye opener for me is just the value of extensive work is so important, whether it's plyometrics to build good ground contacts, extensive tempo work, and it actually drives our energy system development even higher. But just from a standpoint of we haven't got into spring ball yet um, or into like camp after our summer programming, but I just think it's going to drive down our injuries due to that kind of acute spike that you see. Cause every football coach like day one wants to go as hard as they possibly can marry it with a day two. That's even higher. You're not going to get a lot of coaches to go like a true high low. So you have to prepare them the best you can for what they're going to face. I love that. That's the Derek Hansen kind of thought process of stay high or stay low and stay out of the crappy middle ground. So that's awesome. hundred percent. Yeah. And repeat sprint. I never really thought of that until uh, I don't know. This has just really changed my view of, I never thought of it as the middle, but it really is. I mean, you just can't sustain those super, super high outputs for an extended period of time. And generally you're the coach that's, Oh, we have a cutoff time. Say it's 
seven seconds for this rep. Your fastest guy coasts and makes it. Your slowest guy is just working his ass off, barely makes it. So you're getting such different adaptation. First, like our repeat sprint ability test, it's four sets of four reps. Skill guys go 20 yards and back. Semi guys go 15 yards and back. Line guys just to keep their distances close to like what we've seen on GPS and change the directions a little bit closer to like contacts with another human than just upright running. Uh, they go five back, 10 back as far as they can. So each rep is five seconds. It's not a distance that they have to achieve. It's they go as far as they can in five seconds. We record how far they went. Rep two on a 25 seconds rest because the average play is four to five seconds. Average recovery is 25 seconds. So we'll do four sets of four, measure their distance each rep, measure their distance each quarter, and measure their total distance. And then we'll look at the decay quarter one to quarter two, what percentage they drop by. Quarter one to quarter three, quarter one to quarter four. And last year, for example, when we did a ton of repeat sprint, probably too much, well, like I thought we'd be in great shape, quote unquote, we had guys drop by like 11% on average in the fourth set of it. This year, the average drop was literally 0%. We had a couple guys who got further. The most drop-off we had on the entire team, we only had one person drop by 5%, and it was 5.1% or 5.2%. It was really just uh, their recovery between sets was two minutes, and like in two minutes, they were like, oh, like I'm ready to go because they'd done so much aerobic work at an excellence of tempo versus the year before when we got two minutes, people were like, oh, coach, like shit, like I am not ready for that. And every set, the only difference in how far the first person made it and the last person made it was their level of alactic output. Like if person one could make it further, he consistently made it further every single rep than person like 12 down the list. They just weren't as fast as the other guy. Um, which if you can do those things and the most yards anyone covered was like 520 or no, 532 yards of maximal sprint distance and like 20 minutes and completely safe. Like they're probably ready to play football. I'd assume. Yeah. I'm super interested to see how that, how, what the guys feedback are to you after spring brawl and after fall camp. Yeah. And like currently the guys just have, you know, qualitatively said, I feel so much better. Like I'm in better against shape, quote unquote, like their energy systems are a lot more developed. Like the aerobic tempo runs, the most we got up to was, which is probably pretty aggressive. But again, we want to create that reserve. The biggest practice I'd ever seen someone of like running distance was like 4,700 yards. I was like, I want our tempo run session to be higher than the furthest thing I've ever seen. So we went 5,000 yards. We did 50 100s on about 17, 18 seconds down on average. Guys coasting at a good 70, 75%. It has to look like a sprint, though, hitting good shapes. And then uh, it's another chance to coach your speed stuff that you can't coach during speed because if they're going a maximal, they're not thinking about technique. So every rep has a good technical focus to it. They're building better ground contacts. They're building volume, but then they're also just building their aerobic system. The first week when we were only doing like 20 reps of hundreds, guys were like smashed. I'm like, oh man, this is like, should be easy. And they're out of shape. That's coming off a big break. But then like our last week, our volume went up and then kind of like bell curve back down while our later in the week tempo 
slowly grew the entire time. So each one, it kind of balanced out the, the total volume over time. But the last week of our long to short day on Tuesday, we ran 20 or we ran 120s on a 15 second rolling clock. So by the time they finish, get set, you're really only looking at like seven, eight seconds of rest. I mean, we were doing sets of 20, 25 reps at a time, and guys were, like, having conversations in their seven seconds that they had. Um, versus most teams who do a ton of repeat sprint, if you ask them to do that, I would assume they don't have a very robust aerobic system and would be absolutely gassed. That's awesome. I, I, I'm going to have to go back, listen to that, and write it all down. <laughs> that, that's some good stuff. I love the, the aerobic reserve. Uh, we talk a lot about the speed reserve, the power reserve, strength reserve, all that stuff, and trying to keep that the same for everything but let's try and let's uh transition into the rapid fire round can you give us some favorite books that you have for the listeners to um to read favorite book all time is the traveler's gift by andy andrews the noticer by andy andrews is probably like top three uh, anything by andy andrews he's just the absolute legend uh, he has written any book that he's written. I've read and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, the bottom of the pool is one of his on creativity bounce by Matt Saeed was a really impactful book for me. Range. I forget his name, but range, it was like kind of contradictory to bounce actually, but the two together, I think are a very good book. I really like Joshua Metcalf. He has chop wood, carry water, pound the stone, both fantastic books. All of those that I mentioned, go back to like they're all stories I, I i think stories are just really sticky easy to remember great concepts within them um the slide edge was an impactful book on my life just in general that are really interesting the character gap is one of the most fascinating books i've ever read not necessarily the most impactful to my day-to-day -day life but very good that's probably too many suggestions but that's enough <laughs> that's good stuff no, my favorite and my favorite part of that is they were no, none of them were strictly strength conditioning books yeah, strength and conditioning. I mean, I think everyone should look at Charlie Francis's stuff just from a high-low concept. Like Derek Hansen always talks about that signal versus noise of make your high days really high. Avoid the noise in the middle. Like you don't want middle intensity. Vertical integration, I love. Um, Isarin's like block periodization, building a modern athlete. I never use block periodization. I don't think I ever will with athletes. I just don't think it makes sense to have a, a block that builds on another block and you completely abandon those qualities. I really like the residual effects that he talks about, though, is what dictates vertical integration. Um, there's so many really good messages without having to do block periodization within that book. Mike Boyles, I love just from a simplistic standpoint. It's really good. Vern Gambetta, Athletic Development, again, really simple, like common knowledge stuff, science and practice. I think is a, a valuable like entry level book. Super training is like super dense, but there's some extreme value to that as well. But really, strength and conditioning. I think if you've read a lot of those, but there's only so many books to read. Uh, High performance training for sport by David Joyce is definitely one of my favorites, just because it got experts in each field to kind of pick something that they're very knowledgeable about and write about. I like reading like research and just experimenting more so than I like. I think if you have the general philosophy, there's only so many goods strength and conditioning text that I've read. But if you go read a research article and you can extrapolate what's important from it and have a general philosophy, I think that's a lot cleaner than anytime someone writes a book, 
it's really like secondhand knowledge from either their own research or someone else's versus just getting your own interpretation of what the research is saying. Yeah. And the, I think uh, my favorite part was that, that the, those books that you mentioned first that have nothing to do with strength conditioning are going to give you more tools to use coaching than I think to me personally, than the strength conditioning books are going to give you. For sure. I would definitely take a person who's just well-versed in like, you have to be a good teacher to be a coach. You don't have to be super smart to be a great coach, um, especially if you're talking about a, a rounding out of staff. I think if you're in a, a director type role or things like that, yeah, you definitely have to have a, a, a certain knowledge requirement. But if you're just talking about an assistant coach on the staff, I would take someone who can just teach stuff really well and you can you can always learn. Uh, but the person who's just a complete book nerd and has no social skills, no ability to to lead a group or teach, like it's just a complete waste. So transition to our next question. Um, who's a guest that you think we should have on that could add a lot of value to the listeners? The people I bounce ideas off of the most are uh, Jordan, who was already on uh, my staff in particular, and Cam Joss, uh, Joel Reinhardt are definitely my top two. Jake Niederman at the University of Minnesota would be great. He was on our staff prior. Those are kind of the guys that I use as like a soundboard and send anything that I'm thinking of to them and kind of get their feedback on things. I love it. What's uh, what's kind of next for you? What's the next step in your life or just kind of next goal that you have? I don't really have any, uh, I guess it's sad to say, long-term like goal of moving positions, uh, anything like that. I think when I got into it, I was, I want to be the highest paid FBS strength coach, like director of football only. And then you get a wife, you have kids and you realize, holy shit, that's a big time investment. Yeah. You make a great salary, but a lot of it's just guarding your desk and like a bunch of shit that you don't really want to do. Like for me, it's, I, I want to have full autonomy of what I'm doing, which I have here. I want to get paid well, which I have here. I want to have a great staff around me. That's going to challenge me and allow me to grow. I want to work with athletes and I want to have a chance to like kind of build a legacy and be known. I, I think everyone selfishly wants to know that they're doing a good job. And I think you can build recognition for yourself at a, a school like this, or um, like Donnell Boucher is, has shown that you can be a great strength coach at an FCS level. They're uh, Keir, Eric, they're at the FCS level. Now they've been at bigger jobs. Um, but there, Jeff Jones is, is, Another guy who would be a great guest, I send my stuff to him too. He was at Luther College, a Division three school in Iowa. Ended up becoming the director at App State, and now he's he's back at the high school level. But when he's at App State, everyone thinks he's a great strength coach, when in reality, he was the exact same guy when he was at, at Luther College. There's so many good coaches, you know, at those smaller levels. Um, so for me at this point, it, it's really just keep getting better every single day and, and be a better husband father and, and coach i don't have any career goals that what's next for me no i love that that's kind of the tim ferris model of not trying to just keep reaching for that next level of job if just because it pays more maybe you're losing some freedom that is worth more to you than that money is 100 percent. and yeah if you're making a great salary but i have to bounce around my family every year and that's you know, maybe you're at a, a non-power five trying to get to a power five, then you move again, or you're at a power five and you're just, I think things also can become a little bit unethical at that point when your job is tied to a head coach and those athletes performing, you kind of lose sight of the big picture of just helping the athletes. You're so invested in, oh, we have to win versus for me, it's, I just want to make them more successful beings, whether that's them winning more games. Yeah, I'd love for them to win more games because that's what they want to do, but it doesn't really have an impact on my life. I, I want them to just be better, better human beings and, and be a good coach to them. Uh, versus when you get to that top level, 
everything you do is really tied into those wins and losses. So it kind of skewed. That's where that character gap came into into play and like just my general life philosophy. I love it. So you, you mentioned it earlier, but this is one of my favorite questions that we ask. Um, what do you want your legacy to be when you're on your deathbed, like when you're done with all this? Um, my like guiding quote is from Andy Andrews, the traveler's gift, like the ultimate outcome of anyone's life is a matter of personal choice. And I add in the quote from Larry Wingett and uh, shut up, stop whining and get a life was the name of the book, which is fantastic too. But he said, if your life sucks, you suck. And so I'd like to be known as like a guy that just lived a great life whether that encompasses whatever I believe in. Like, I, I think my life is great currently, and I wouldn't really change anything about it. Um, so I'd just say someone that was really consistent and lived a great life, whatever that means. <laughs> I love it. The very last question of the podcast. You, you, your billboard message is somebody that's in a valley. valley. They're, they're kind of in a tough spot. They're in a dark place. What's kind of your message to kind of get them out of that? If your life sucks, because you suck. <laughs> like choose some better habits. There's a lot of people who complain about their situation. They're like victims of it. And, oh, I don't make enough money to do this or that. Like there's a big debate in like our field, especially like, oh, we don't get paid enough. Like I personally think I get paid enough. Do I think I could be worth a little bit more? Sure. But like I make a great living for what I do. I think there's jobs that will pay you well for, uh, there's jobs that will pay you crazy generational type money in this field you have to bring real value like everyone just wants this oh i have a master's degree i should make fifty thousand. like bring some value and you will there's plenty of jobs that pay people well in any field and i think people just get caught complaining when yeah our job our our career path could definitely have more jobs that pay well and people should understand what we do but if you provide value people will see that and you'll you'll make what you're worth yeah, that's that's freaking awesome. There's definitely a way to make it happen if, if you want to make it happen. Yeah, and with the the revenue streams outside of strength and conditioning, you can make great money. And then people are like, oh, well, that's not part of my job. Well, if money's what you want, there's ways of of doing it. Exactly, being able to brand, being able to yeah. There's oh man, I, I don't. I know you have a you have a meeting coming up, so I don't want to keep you here too long. But that yeah, that that's I love that. That's an awesome part. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. That was awesome. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Keep chopping wood.